0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Peso Dizolele. I'm a Senior Fellow and the Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa: politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. The United States foreign policy stands on four big pillars: diplomacy, defense, development. And democracy. And each one of these pillars is a world unto itself. Defense, for instance, is not just the military. It involves a large family of agencies tasked with the security of the country, including the United States Customs and Border Protection and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So it is with the development pillar, which holds together its own family of agencies and institutions such as the United States Agency for International Development, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the United States African Development Foundation, and the United States International Development Finance Corporation. These institutions seek to both advance the interest of the United States and invest in economic development opportunities around the world. Today, the foreign policy space in Africa, our area of interest, is much more complex and dynamic than it used to be, with an ever-expanding number of actors from the European Union to Turkey, to the Gulf Arab states to China, all vying for opportunities to advance their agendas. How does this benefit Africa? Or does it? Joining me on Into Africa is Travis Adkins, the president and chief executive of the US African Development Foundation. Travis assumed the leadership of the foundation in January 2022. He previously served as the Deputy Assistant Administrator for Africa at the U.S. Agency for International Development. He's also a former senior fellow of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Good morning, Travis, and welcome.
1: Good morning, Vimba. Thank you so much for the warm welcome to the Into Africa podcast. I always feel like I'm returning home and amongst family when I'm with you all.
0: Absolutely. You are returning home. So welcome home and congratulations again on your appointment. We've known each other for a while now. I first knew you when you were working on the Hill, on Capitol Hill. You were working in the Subcommittee on African Affairs. And then you also had worked at the Council on Foreign Relations. And you have worked in Africa in various capacities over the years with the United Nations, and also different organizations. But what I find fascinating is the many engagements you just keep, even today. You still teach at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and then you also teach in a prison scholar program, meaning that you're also heavily involved in civic programs right here at home in the United States. How do you find the time to do this?
1: It's a great question, Vemba, and I think... You know, they say that we make time for the things that we believe are important and that we're committed to. And I have to tell you that a large part of it is not just about the career path that I've chosen, but it is about the path of my life. And one of the things about doing this work at home and abroad is rooted in the community from which I come. And so as an African-American, I always say that we stand in the space where Africa collided with the United States and the kind of history of struggle that that produced, the kind of interest in freedom and democracy and service to community that that produced. I am a child of that. I am a son of those who believed and who taught and who lived in that way. And so I don't really see myself as doing anything special, but only living out the commitment that I have which is to raise the standard of living for the people of Africa and its diaspora at home and abroad. And so I always want to be found doing the things at home that we believe are so important in our foreign policy engagements. And it's a funny thing for me, too, Vemba, because when I started, you can imagine, uh, you know, a southern kid growing up in poverty in a segregated environment among family who are saying, hey, listen, with all of the challenges we have here, We can't understand why you think it's important to go halfway around the world to, quote unquote, deal with someone else's problems. But I didn't see the people of African descent on this side of the Atlantic as disconnected and different from those on the continental side of the Atlantic. And have tried to live my life in a way that suggests that.
0: It's deep. It's deep, Travis. And I think... The space you just emphasized now, the collision space where Africa collided with the United States of America, is a trouble space. Is a challenging space. It presents a lot of opportunities. This is why I'd like to know, what is the Africa Development Foundation? How did it come to be? And why, when there are so many other agencies, such as the USAID, Exim Bank, back in the day, OPEC, and the list goes on. So... What is the story behind the African Development Foundation? It's been around for 40 years. We don't hear much about it. Probably, I presume, is because in the big family of the development pillar, there are big players in there, such as, again, United States Agency for International Development, the other organization that I referred to. So can you tell us a little bit how this came to be 40 years on? How is it different from the others? Sure,
1: Venbo. You know, as I've been saying, It is often said that the US African Development Foundation is the best kept secret of the US government. And so I've taken it as a pillar of my tenure to change that from best kept secret to simply one of the best foreign assistance agencies in the US foreign policy toolkit. Uh, As you know, the USADF is actually the only U.S. foreign assistance agency that is solely committed to the African continent. As you laid out in your question, uh, we were created over 40 years ago in 1980 with a specific goal of investing directly in African grassroots, enterprises and social entrepreneurs with a specific focus on those who are looking at the improvement of lives and livelihoods of people in the most underserved communities across the continent. I think another thing that makes us particularly unique is our focus on wholly African owned and African led initiatives. And so that means that we don't arrive on the continent with our idea about what people should be doing, about how they should proceed, but we are looking to support their ingenuity, their aspirations, their leadership, and the efforts that they have already undertaken, especially those looking at food security and entrepreneurship, as well as the development of enterprises that are investing in African communities. And so I think this focus for us is another point where we stand out because there is no middleman. There is no U.S. based NGO through which our funds are mediated. We are funding African partners directly in 21 countries across the continent. Additionally, our staff on the ground are 100% African. And so that means no matter what happens, whether conflict, coup or natural disaster, you know, we're not an agency that is faced with the challenge of evacuating expats, right? Our staff are people of their nations. They're already home. They have the best understanding of the local context, of the lay of the land politically, socially and so forth. And so because of that, We have a capacity. uh, I think that is above and beyond many of our peers to reach people and to have certain kinds of understandings that give us the ability to serve in many contexts where others are are not able to do so.
0: This is fascinating. The model you just described, the way the African Development Foundation functions. But I still want to go back a little bit to the history. So the eighties, when uh, ADF was created, were also turbulent years. South Africa was still under apartheid. Namibia was still struggling with its independence. Zimbabwe barely became independent in 1980. Angola, the aftermath of the independence war, was still raging with people like Savimbi and others. So what was the impetus behind the creation of the ADF? Was this a project initiated to the Black Caucus in Congress? I'm just curious about, and I presume a lot of your listeners will be wondering the same question.
1: It's a great question, Vemba, and I think that it's really interesting in light of the fact that over the last two or three years, from academic spaces, from think tank spaces, you know, we're starting to hear increasingly this phrase about decolonizing aid, decolonizing U.S. foreign assistance or Western foreign assistance to the continent. But it's interesting that actually in 1977, it was Senators Ed Kennedy and George McGovern who had initially sponsored the African Development Foundation Act. And this was during the 95th Congress. And it basically was proposing an amendment to the U.S. Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 to establish the African Development Foundation with the purpose of strengthening the bonds of friendship between the people of Africa and the United States to assist in African development. And it was specifically saying that we should be working directly with marginalized and poor communities, that we should be specifically giving grants in those communities that are directed to the ends that those people in those nations and contexts decide. And so it did separate itself from the broader foreign assistance paradigm and was specifically curated to be different. So it did not evolve into a different path but it was actually created to take a different path. And again, so many people now are still arguing that we need to be doing development differently. We need to have an approach that's more localized. We need to focus more on what our African partners want, not knowing that over 40 years ago, there were members of Congress who had the exact same idea and created an agency to do just that. And they decided to call it the U.S.
0: African Development Foundation. This was some cutting-edge thinking at the time, and still is today. We talk about localization of foreign aid and development aid and so on. How is that tradition carried out? And it sounds to me like you kind of a cross between private equity, NGO, development. What are the challenges then in operating in this space? And I see here that you don't work in the easiest regions either. You are in the Sahel, you are in the Horn, and you are in the Great Lakes region of Africa. These are some of the trouble spots of the continent.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Vim. But you know, when I first moved to Washington almost 20 years ago now, I was working for an NGO called Africa, and they had a phrase that said that our work starts where the paved roads stop. And I would say that the U.S. African Development Foundation is very much operating under a similar ethos. You mentioned the Sahel, you mentioned the Great Lakes and the Horn of Africa. And one of the reasons that we've chosen those places is because, again, they are places where desertification and challenges with the environment have collided with challenges of government, colonial legacies. In the case of the Horn and the Sahel conditions that make economic viability a challenge because of a dearth of natural resources. Of course, in the Great Lakes, you have the other challenge that the wealth of resources in the context of poor governance, again, makes the livelihoods of everyday African people a challenge to deal with. When you talk about, in a sense, the many hats that the agency wears, it's very interesting, right? Because to your point, it is a government agency, But yet it also operates as a foundation. It also operates in some ways as an NGO. And I think that that kind of Swiss knife quality that we have is, again, another thing that makes us very unique. And so in terms of partnerships, I mean, we are an outfit that is partnering with African governments themselves who often are offering matching funds to the funds that we submit to partners in their countries to help raise their standards of living. We are partnering, of course, with interagency partners like the U.S. Agency for International Development, the DFC, MCC, and others. And then again, we're partnering with private organizations and institutions, whether they be finance or entertainment-related outfits, that are also looking again to do work in the continent. And then we also have another slice of our work in vision, which is about how we engage the African diaspora. And for me, when I say it, I mean both the historical African diaspora, which are African descended people who have been in the West for centuries, as well as the contemporary diaspora of fairly newly arrived African people who may be first or second generation Americans, looking at how they can engage on their continent and in their home countries, even though they're now resident in the United States.
0: Through that model, which I found fascinating when I was reading about ADF, you work with youth, you work with women, you work with communities that you mentioned earlier, but you also work with businesses like enterprises, And then you also have partnerships with uh, government. Can you speak a little bit? How do you manage those? Are you represented through embassies or do you go out in the field where the paved roads stop and knocking on different doors? Your grants go up to about $250,000. That's a lot of money. What is the lower end of that? And just walk us a little bit through this process How you select your partners through that spectrum I just referred to. Sure. You know, I think a,
1: a big part of it, but first, let me just speak to the demographic part of this. You know, we know that the continent now is over a billion people. And the funny thing for me about the development assistance world is that because we have this effort to highlight the marginality of women and youth on the continent, I think sometimes what gets lost is that they are the overwhelming majority population on the continent. And so by 2050, over 50 percent of the African population will be under 25. And even as we sit here today, over 600 million people in Africa are women. And so we're not talking about a special interest group, a niche group that we need to have a specific focus on. What we're really talking about are marginalized majorities, right? And so we begin there with that platform as part of our footing. And again, I think because of the way that our platform has been created, it's very easy for us because our staff are in Africa and we go through a process each year, Vemba, of vetting and selecting partners on the ground that have been identified by our staff on the ground, who, of course, are from the countries in which they serve. And so when we open up those pools each year we're looking at programs, projects, entrepreneurs, and social enterprises that are operating in a few specific areas. One of those is agriculture and food security. Another one of those is energy access and renewable energy related kinds of efforts. And the other is really about job creation and the challenges of unemployment and underemployment across the continent. Now, with that said, we do still have some partnerships that are kind of interagency initiatives. So, for instance, we work with the YALI program out of the State Department and USAID, which is, of course, the Young African Leaders Initiative, where we do uh, micro grants and things of that nature to alumni of that program. We also work with the African Women's Economic Initiative to support women entrepreneurs across the continent. And again, that is not a program that we created, but one that we feed into. Additionally, we are able then to leverage our funds with interagency partners where their missions overlap with ours. And so we can strengthen the impact that we can have on the continent. And then as far as partnerships with African governments, it really is a two-pronged approach Sometimes governments will approach us seeking partnerships that can leverage the funds that they want to give to local community development in their nations. And then often we are approaching them either through our staff and partners in the country or through our diplomatic work on this side of the Atlantic with African embassies, with the African diplomatic corps, looking at ways, of course, To both strengthen the relationship between our nations and theirs, but also to leverage the funding that we receive. And so, as an example of that, Vimba, historically, the agency has received about $33 million or so each year. And as we look at current fiscal year, we have the prospect of receiving $43 million this year, which of course is about a 25% increase in our annual allocation. And one of the goals that I have. Is for every dollar that we receive, we should turn it into a dollar through a partnership with a local government, an international uh, development agency of the United States, or a private organization. And so if we were to receive 33, the aim would be to turn it into 66. And now that we stand the prospect of receiving 43, it would be to turn it into 86. And so in this way, we're actually leveraging not only the uS taxpayer dollar but also the African government's contribution and all of that money goes to local development for everyday people in the nations and countries and villages in which we work.
0: Interesting. The areas you've mentioned, Travis, are some of the most pressing areas, agriculture and food security, renewable energy and others. These are areas where Africa is really struggling and lacking. I mean, Africa is full of arable lands but the yield is not always there to feed the people. And there is competition around now, around the world, with the various actors. There competition here at home. How does the U.S. government invest its dollars and where? How do you push for more funding? Who are your constituents? Who are your, your advocates, your champions in the U.S., for instance, in Congress? Are there specific segments of Congress that are your constituents? Absolutely,
1: Vimbo. We have a range of congressional champions just recently, and I will just talk about those that I've met with in the first few weeks of my tenure already. Of course, Chairman Greg Meeks of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Senator Chris Van Hollen, Senator Chris Coons, of course, Chairwoman Barbara Lee uh, of the Congressional Black Caucus, And again, our champion and my former boss, the representative Karen Bass, who, of course, now is the chair of the Africa subcommittee. And so we do have a pretty wide and deep range of bipartisan, bicameral support in Congress, which, of course, is important, not only because we're looking at our annual allocation, but of course, because we are a child of congressional initiative to develop, and to establish our agency. And so engagement on the Hill is also a pillar of my tenure here. And again, the main thrust for me is to be able to demonstrate year over year that we can take what they've given us and turn it into more and have a greater impact with it, especially as we look, Vemba now, at the context of climate challenges uh, COVID 19, and of course, issues of conflict and governance across the continent.
0: Congress is your main funder, and you need all the support. And you've described this bipartisanship, which I think is always good when it comes to Africa. So far, we knock on wood, right? <laughs> Africa has always been a bipartisan interest in, in Congress, and that has served Africa well. And we hope that to remain. But what is your relationship with the other actors in that space? And I'm talking about the NGOs. Because the area that you work in, we talked about this hybrid model that ADF is. So do you have any partnership or any relationship with NGOs, local and internationals? Because that's a challenging space. Yes, certainly our
1: partners are often local, non-governmental organizations, farmer cooperatives, collaborative engagement uh, with various kinds of civic groups, looking again at the issues of employment and underemployment, of youth development, of women's empowerment. And again, in these areas of uh, food security and renewable energy and employment related services. One of the things, again, though, that does make us unique is that even though I am uh, a person who has developed much of my skills and leadership and understanding yes. of the world through my work with U.S.-based non-governmental organizations outside of kind of engaging them in Washington, working with them in terms of collaborative efforts to understand the challenges we face. We actually do not use, uh, U.S. NGOs as middlemen in our development assistance programs and projects. And that's one of the things, again, that makes us the most, the most unique because we then don't lose the overhead that they often require, and we actually have a heightened opportunity Vemba, to develop the finance skills, the management skills, the leadership skills of indigenous African organizations so that they themselves can be increasingly self-sufficient in the management of funds that they intake from us, in the readiness that they have to prepare themselves to receive bank loans in and of themselves, to increase their own credit worthiness, and then to graduate beyond the point at which USADF can help them. And so we're talking seed capital for entrepreneurial enterprises that we want to see grow and flourish under the belief that trade over aid is the way to go, and that helping African nations ultimately develop strengthened economic engines is one of the ways in which we'll see the resolution of so many of the problems that we
0: face on the continent. So that is uh, capacity building, financial capacity building, and other dimensions of capacity building. You know, in every case, there is always a gap. In our show here in this program, we mind the gap. In other words, there's always a gap between the perception and the reality of any situation, even on a personal level. It's the way people perceive us and what we really are. So where is the gap for ADF and your engagement in Africa? The perception, as I said, you are small. You're in the shadow of your big brothers and sisters, you know, Exim Bank, United States International Development Finance Corporation now, USAID and so on. Where is that gap for you and uh, how do you close it? Sure.
1: I I think the gap for us is really a gap in perception and a gap in understanding. And so one of the things that I believe is that your ability to be a leader, your ability to be exemplary, your ability to show the way and to innovate is not correlated directly to the size of your institution or to the number of people who believe in the way that you believe. And so though we are small, Think about the fact of how the kind of talk in Washington and in development circles around localization is a kind of fad that goes up and goes down and becomes the hot new thing and then goes out of fashion. Well, here's the thing. So many people get credit for saying that they're going to do it or acknowledging the credibility of that idea. But we have been doing that exact work for over 40 years. I think another part of this is when we talk about trade over aid, we are an institution that is looking to help Africans develop themselves economically, to develop their enterprises, not looking at kind of short term development programs or even humanitarian assistance, both of which are critical, important and life-saving. But again, the economic aspect of what people need is another part of this. The other thing I think, Vimba, that's really critical is that we don't have to wrestle necessarily with large geopolitical questions, with notions of great power competition. In other words, we can look at the continent on its own terms, not because of the way another nation is engaging it or what another nation is thinking about it, but what are the needs of the everyday people in that country? And I think if you talk to African leaders, African civil society actors, African citizens, this is the cry, engage us for who we are, on our terms, not because of another geopolitical interest, not because of some competition or some global chess game, but because we're worthy and because there is this long history between Africa and the United States and that we can strengthen our partnerships in those countries by what we do to support those people, not by what we do to counter others who are attempting to work in those same spaces. And then remember, if you come to the United States and you look at the African Development Foundation, over 60% of our staff are women. Over 60% of our staff are people of color, African descended people, people from underrepresented groups. And so you put all that together and you're looking at an organization, though not as widely known, should be the envy of the foreign assistance world in Washington, because we're leading in ways in actuality that other people are saying that they aspire to lead. And we're doing it already every day.
0: Very well, so the takeaway, it's a big gap. You need to work on it. Africa needs to be engaged on its own terms to an African prism. That we very much appreciate. Travis Atkins, thank you for joining us today. 100%.
1: 100%. Thank you all so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at CSIS.org slash Africa. So long.